is Scott Morey with 111 Advisors. This is another RE Insight podcast series, and we have Denise Taylor with, you have a longer name now, on the lease company name, yes. Univell Redamco Westfield. We're going to talk about that in more detail. Uh, we're in your offices in uh, LA, and being from Chicago, I'm happy to be here this week, given how, how cold it is. So thank you for the time. Great to have you. Thank you. So I want to start, like I always do, sorry, I'm consistent, from the beginning to some extent, and just start, like, where did you grow up? So I'm actually born and raised in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, I'm a native. Uh, lived in the San Fernando Valley pretty much my entire life, and most of my family's from here. Okay. Yes, yes. Travel a lot. I've had a global role for, gosh, 20-some-odd years, but always seem to make my way back to L.A. as home. Yeah, you've got, we're going to get there later, you have some East Coast connections, I think, in some ways. I couldn't figure out where they came. At least I believe that. We're going to talk about it, but okay. we're going we're gonna to come back to that, actually. Okay. So you started, you ended up at um, Pepperdine yes. in 99, yes. actually. Yes. But actually, your work life started in 97. Yes, absolutely. And so let's talk, and it's, a, it's fascinating, actually. And then how you ended up in real estate, okay. I apologize. but No well, worries, <laughs> no worries. But... Talk about it, because you were on the music side initially. Yes. Yeah, so at Universal. I, I, I didn't follow the traditional, you know, career trajectory where it's high school, you go to college and on your MBA and your career. Um, I actually took some time, did some junior college classes, but also started a career. I uh, started right. over within the NBC Universal family, um, and at the same time was finishing uh, an undergraduate and graduate at Pepperdine. Yeah. Um, again, staying local and, and kind of enjoying that. Um, Spent uh, about nine years in, in the NBC family, you know, the Universal side, then went over to the Universal Music side for the last four years. Yeah. Uh, great. I was in technology, uh, even though my, my college degree is actually an, an MBA, so I have a business degree and really, really wasn't focused on technology specifically at all. Uh, just love business and leadership, and so that's kind of the path that I took and somewhat fell into a role um, at NBC that led me on a career path to really where I am today with technology. Now, when you look at Pepperdine, so I, I applied at Pepperdine, they wouldn't let me in, <laughs> just being honest about it. Uh, but you were quick, right? Because you, you started your MBA before, it looks like, before you finished your undergraduate. You did the whole thing in, I think, four years. So the whole thing was done in, in five years um, in, in, in completeness. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I did a, I started the graduate um, at the same last year I was finishing up my undergraduate and then we did a compressed schedule which Pepperdine was able to do in one of their executive programs and it worked out fantastically well and it was, uh, it's something if, if I had a chance to do over again I would do it the exact same way. Yeah. It was the balance of actually already being in the workforce so I had a little bit mm -hmm. of a knowledge of how business and processes and people work and then being able to take it back to and apply it almost real life to what we were doing in school. Yeah. Um, and Pepperdine in particular, everything was done in a group setting. So there was very little done on individual contribution, which I think is such an incredible way to look at things. Mm -hmm. I think it's highly valuable when, when you're going into any type of business, whether it be leadership, whether it be actually uh, uh, technology, whether it be marketing. Uh, it's kind of my same concept. I have a huge passion around coaching in, in sports and uh, so I actually part of the reason why I did junior college at first was in my spare time I coached junior high school kids and oh, I love I think it, it you know if it could afford me a fantastic world of life and life <laughs> I would have stayed coaching kids but 
that kind of whole teamwork and how you get a group to work successfully together for an end result. Yeah. And an end result is more than just winning. It's learning, growing, developing, developing relationships, how to communicate. Uh, it's probably what I think is so foundational to, to what I believe in. Well, there are certain sports. Uh, so I did. I actually did basketball and volleyball. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, I'm just a general sports fan. So I and I love kids. So yeah, lots of fun with that. Can explain your career move later on. <laughs> you know, I tried coach. I have four kids. I tried coaching my youngest one in soccer when she was like five or six, and it was the most stressful, hardest thing I have ever done in my life. And I coached for two years, and I was thrilled when 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 I was no longer asked to coach. So I give you I give you a huge amount of credit. But it had to be if you take those years at Pepperdine. Forgetting that you were working on the side, just getting that done in four years had to be a ton yes. of work. And then adding to that, that you were at Universal, right, within that period of time or yes. within that family of yes. companies. I can't even imagine your, the, the, level of, right, the level of discipline or just effort you had to go through had to be unbelievable, the um, time pressure. When I look back, I, I definitely, at the time, it seemed so natural, you know, as you know, uh, working during the day and night school and weekend school, and I, I really I thrive on it. I actually love. I even today I'm I'm not the kind that generally sits still. I'm always on the go. Um, I, I I say this all the time. I didn't get that gene where where I'm going to be your eight to five type of person. Um, right. Even after regular hours of, of work and such, I love getting my hands in you know advisory stuff and consulting stuff. It doesn't change even today. But it was during that time. It was definitely, especially you know, you're in your, you're in your early twenties. There's you know, obviously yeah. enjoying life too. Um, and so that I would say, I remember really having to have some discipline around that, and uh, and kind of just being focused and wanting to achieve something. And do you know where that comes from? That drive is that from parents or an influence, or is this one of those things you don't understand but just know you're built that way? Uh, I would say I'm the youngest of nine, and okay. I'm by I, I'm by far the youngest. So there's a ten year gap between myself and the rest of the family, mm-hmm. and I just I don't I, I could tell you since a young age I always said I I knew I would work really hard and even in school, but I would love what I was doing. I just wanted to be impactful, right. and it would be make impacting people's lives or a business. However, it was I just wanted to do things that was impactful. And I, I knew that from a young age. I, I did. I will say, I do remember always wanting to give back to my mom. Uh, my mm-hmm. father passed away when I was incredibly young, and I always just had this thing around. There's nine of us. She's trying to, you know, keep us all afloat. I just wanted to always be able to take care of her and give back to her. Yeah, hard with your father. It had to be hard, yeah, at some level. So absolutely. I would say for most of us, at least me, I'm. I'm assuming I'm, I got a few years on you or something. They say the next stage of growing up is this awful stage of losing your parents. Yes, yes. Sadly, some of us use them, lose them early. Now you stayed on at university or at um, yeah, you stayed on at university for three years after you graduated. I think. Yes, absolutely. So I actually continued. To, it was a great. I, I've been very blessed in my life with my career. I, I can look back and tell you every element of my career, every role I've had, and the leaders I've had, the teams. I have such great experiences. Not mm-hmm. is everything perfect? No, but um, after NBC, actually, uh, I remember I, I probably within just a quick period of graduating, um, really came to me and and, and continued to promote me and mm-hmm. uh, you know asked, kept always asking to make sure what I was interested in taking on, which I always thought that was just a great way to approach things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I enjoyed it tremendously. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, that change to leave NBC was we were. Uh, 
we went, I was on the music side of the house mm -hmm. and we did a, uh, there was an acquisition by a French company named Orange. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, I stayed on for some integration a bit and then uh, some other great opportunities came up and I'm not shy on, on what I see as an opportunity is not necessarily what everyone else sees as an opportunity. I yeah. like challenges. I like, I would, I'm not the kind that likes to go into a status quo that everything's running fantastically well and doesn't mm -hmm. need much oversight. Uh, so, uh, so I decided to, to then make a change after that. So the change, you end up at AEG, you were there like nine years, and for those that don't know, I mean, it's a huge entertainment company, and it's a real estate company yes. in many ways, too, yes. when you look at the stadium side. Um, and it's an interesting inflection point, too, because you think about you joined there in 2006, I think, Correct. right? And so three, you come out of Pepperdine, you finish the last three years, you're on the music side then. I'm trying to think the impact on the music industry relative to the digitization of <laughs> yes. it, right? Like, it started about, your inflection Absolutely. points were pretty close at that period of time. Like, when, I'm trying to think when Apple Music even came out. So it was actually interesting at the, what was, at my, my couple years on the music side of the house was when consumers had changed how they were consuming music and they, yeah. the Napsters of the world showed up mm -hmm. and a, a lot of, of, of streaming services. And in all reality, the music industry took a path of really trying to fight it in the courts. Yeah. And, you know, clearly didn't today, go well. didn't go yeah. well. <laughs> and uh, so that was a, absolutely a huge inflection point and a big change. And it's, uh, it was one of those things that I look at today and I still see a lot of the similarities of uh, businesses really struggling to understand in most industries, we have to follow how the consumer wants to intake, interact, consume, curate. Yeah. The products. Yeah, I guess we deny at periods of time different industries of who's in control yes. and the customer is always. Always. That's a great way to say it. Right? Yes, yes, definitely. Level. And then going to AEG, like I think about, you go back to what stadiums looked like two decades ago, or take LA, since we're in LA, take the Coliseum, and as a kid I used to go to Rams games and yes. stuff. And then you look at probably the most innovative one early, but I, you know better than I, I'd say Barclays got so much press and yes. you know, partially we get Fort Bruce Ratner in Forest City. Right. And I think AEG actually is an owner or part owner, and you were involved in that in some way. Now you look at them, it's just these huge entertainment complexes. Actually, the other one that used to get a lot of press and still does was the new San Francisco Stadium. Yes. With the 49ers yeah, the and the level one. of right, what they were doing with Bluetooth and right. engagement and replays in your phone. Absolutely. So you joined AEG in 2006, and let's talk about your role and kind of then what, what happened with those, you know, the nine years that you were there. Uh, so, so I joined AEG, and it was in the. It was in the years of, of AEG being, um, they were getting ready to, to take on a huge expansion. If you knew them, that was primarily around Staples Center and the Los mm -hmm. Angeles Kings and really the entire uh, redevelopment of LA Live and the entire district around it hadn't started. It was in early concept stages. Yeah. Um, and so came on in, in really over a uh, director role, a senior level director role over a small shop. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, uh, technology was still really more of a break fix shop. I mean, I think the entire team was maybe maybe 20 or so people. Mm -hmm. And we had this math, massive growth uh, plan for the next four years of expansion, building new arenas, state-of-the-art arenas, um, adding new content. So we were obviously, you know, large concerts, family shows, professional sports teams, massive expansion internationally, um, opening up the O2 over in London mm -hmm. and the O2 world in Germany. and. And what, you know, opening up arenas in South America for World Cup. So going from this break-fix role and then suddenly being a part of 
same thing inflection point there started to be during this time as we're expanding competition from the home experience with competing with fans coming in to stay mm -hmm. you know the home experience having the large screens and the high definition screens and the sound and everything was something that was shifting the entire what we were doing in the fan engagement and so it really was a period of moving from an enterprise IT shop to being a very, very much a, a global international technology organization that was around creating state-of-the-art experiences, creating a fan experience, really learning how to engage with fans directly. Yeah. What, they, what would draw them out to an event when most events were now, you had the ability to see them via, via streaming or right. via broadcast. Um, it was one of those just fantastic, amazing experiences to be able to work in so many different countries, so many different regions. I, I don't think I can ever complain around trying to, to, to build technology for a Coachella music festival to trying to, to do state-of-the-art designs for World Cup venues. Yeah. You know? So you got to have, we're not going to get there at all. We could just talk about the stories that I'm sure you know, like, you know, I think about on giving your models in my prior life, you know, I might tell like Easter Bunny stories or, you know, Santa smoking cigarettes outside and getting in trouble, but your stories at AEG have to be a whole other level. And I know they were the promoters too for, it was going to be Michael Jackson's yes, last concert, absolutely. which had a lot of controversy. Yes. But let me go back to, because you look at any inflection point, you get a lot of people selling a lot of things. And you get a lot of, I use the word, shiny objects. And um, as my preparation for this, I'm kind of read as much as I did, but you did an interview in 2011, and part of that interview, and it was a, it was a couple of different people that were in this, and might have been a panel, actually. And as part of that, you were talking about ROI. Yes. And I forget who the other three, I think there were three or four other people that were part of that, and I think some were on the vendor side. Mm -hmm. and they're selling, you know, I say like the Wild West Wagon with the Medicine Man, they show up in the morning selling, you know, at night yeah. showing, you know, selling snake oil. And in the morning they're gone, half the town's dead, and you can't find your money, right? And, and you're hoping you're still alive or something. But talk about at AEG at that point in time, I think there's parallels to where you are today, yes. a different, somewhat different industry, Absolutely. not in a lot of ways too. But just what that was like and, and how you navigated that. And, and I think too, you made comments on those days about the importance of partnerships and how you were bundling technology effectively to deliver yes. services. Absolutely. I'd love to get your thoughts kind of going back yeah. at that point in time and, and okay. what that really meant to you. Absolutely. It was, so it was an interesting time where you were moving from in, in you know, these state-of-the-art arenas, as they were calling them, where you were still dealing in a world of very static engagements with your fans, if any, or, mm -hmm. or even really the, the ability to offer, you wanted to get the prime content coming through your, you know, as we know, uh, Los Angeles, all of the big major markets around the world have multiple, multiple venues of all different sizes that mm -hmm. compete to get the best content coming through. Um, and so you saw this shift and, and it was around truthfully, how could you create a compelling um, venue that you would get the best content and you would drive the greatest fan engagements to, to, to basically make it a, a complete win for everyone. The owner of the building, the operator of the building, the actual talent coming through, and all of the other components of it. Uh, so it was interesting because it was this concept of, well, we, we should use technology to do, there's ways to enable ROI, both indirectly and directly. 
And it's a concept around the lines of, you know, if you're able to engage on different multiple channels via digital instead of just a static type of engagement, you can adjust based on consumer preferences, fan preferences. You also then are able to do a lot of things that you wouldn't have been able to do, such as cross promotions. Um, you know, when you have a an arena environment, there's generally a campus environment that goes with it. So there's local restaurants and shops. In the AEG world, we could cross sell across what was going on in Los Angeles and what was going on, like you said, in Brooklyn at Barclays Center. Um, somehow creating, but making, communicating, making sure that people were aware of this. Elements of being able to do dynamic pricing, whether it was via ticketing or food and beverage, um, you know, based on, you know, Time of the event. How much time of the event was left? Was it was there a certain certain merchandise that was specialty merchandise, and how could you highlight that? Hmm. So you know, through you know, when you're in a time of massive growth, and when you're going from a team of 20, you're expanding your portfolio of arenas around the world to over 150. Uh, some of which you're building brand new, some of which you're you're buying, and they've been in existence for 50 plus years. Yeah. The ability to partner and find partners that are like-minded and want to know. Ultimately, you're trying to deliver the best fan guest experience, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you're enabling your tenants, your operational staff, and your ability to really connect with your, your fans directly. Uh, so that, that's still, to me, something that at the time seemed so, uh, so revolutionary, but it seems so absolutely these are the tools you would use to really start to look at different revenue streams. Mm -hmm. um, why would you not just, you know, build out an entire arena end-to-end -end in all the spaces and offer a turnkey solution for all of your food and beverage that would be coming in and all your merchandise that would be coming in? Mm -hmm. Or all of the, you know, broadcast trucks that needed to come in and provide services for all the different types of events? Why, mm -hmm. why would you not start to bundle and package those together? And then, you, you know, once you get to know them in, in, in the world of, we have arenas and, and small to mid-sized venues in, in, I mean, across the nation and internationally, you start to bundle these packages and, and, and sell it as a part of the service, as a part of what the building has to offer to you. Yeah, I think too, like you look at a football team, of course, stadiums have cross use and it's about utilization. Right. But if you think about a football team, every year, the use of that stadium for football, you have to perfect effectively like 40 or 50 hours a year. That's it. Yes. Utilization. Yes. It's really interesting, right? You think yes. the billions of dollars. Yes. Now, of course, you want to do cross-utilization, which I think you see more of in stadiums, right? But the intensity or the pressure or the low risk tolerance for errors is going to be huge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, what, that's one of the things that was so unique. What we were building for in the event world was basically between four to six hours of being as close to perfection as possible. Yeah, That's the window of time that we had fans either within our space, within our arena, or within our complexes, yeah. right? Especially in the early ages when I first joined AEG, we hadn't built out an entire district in most locations. Generally it was an arena and a yeah. few small maybe restaurants around. That four to six windows required such a level of excellence on the technology, the people running the technology, but the entire operations team, everything yeah. from grounds crews to uh, maintenance to just the GMs of the buildings. And then we really started to evolve the arenas and the entire spaces to districts. And then ultimately in some cases it would come out to be a smart city. You would start, you could see it even in the early years. 
uh, where if you look at Staples Center, which it opened in 99, and yeah. what you look at today in 2019, it's, an, it's, it's revitalized all of yeah. downtown, but you have LA Live, you have hotels, you have restaurants, completely mixed use, mm -hmm. um, that ultimately you suddenly were now building technology to tie an entire campus together. And O2, thinking of O2 in London, I mean, it, it broke ground that way, right? Yes. Getting all kinds of, re, uh, re, not necessarily more in a, a restaurant and other stuff, yes. but from the very beginning, given that location. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because the, there's a pattern here, but you already know that, with this, the sheer pace, because I go back to your Pepperdine ties <laughs> days at Universal, which had to be like a fire hose. Yes, and, yes. And you go into another version of one. Absolutely. And absolutely. so how did you end up in real estate? <laughs> <laughs> Not that there are different fire hoses, right? But I mean, how did you end up here? Uh, you know, so it's quite interesting. I, I you know, love what I'm doing at, at AEG. Have great relationships. It, it was so fun and enjoyable and always new challenges because, you know, content was changing. Uh, the fans were changing. The guests were changing. I get this call up from, from a from a headhunter, uh, this, the group called uh, Catalyst, are wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the first conversation, and I know I said, Westfield, the malls, you know I don't have direct retail experience. And, and I remember this being such a, I was like, I'm not sure why you're calling me type of thing. And what transpired for the next, uh, I'll say lengthy period of time, probably three to four months was this amazing realization that basically commercial real estate, specifically in shopping centers, was exactly following the same thing I had just done within the sports entertainment world. They were looking at, they, they have fantastic locations that needed to be, one, repurposed, really start to focus on a consumer experience before it was really being more of a landlord. It wasn't so different from the original arenas in, in you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. And moving more from being a landlord to this idea of hospitality and being about guests and being about consumers and trying to understand who your consumer is and what they like. and. Yeah, it was, uh, when I started off, is like, yeah, okay, I'll entertain this conversation. It's just intriguing to me. Yeah. Came in, I probably have never met such an executive team that I, I, I could have talked with them for hours. All of them individually um, literally had the same concept. They highly successful, obviously, Westfield, 57 plus years in operation. They knew they had to change. They knew they had to change their business model. They understood that they had that some of their the, the key things that were revenue drivers for them before were massively being disrupted by everything from consumers changing patterns of how they wanted to engage with us, the online world, the retailers, the who we were working with changing. And they just they wanted to invest the resources, the people, they wanted to think differently. And they thought going out of industry in other markets who had similar, similar was the way to go. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I saw so many, so many of the same challenges, but I also saw a ton of synergies um, from my previous role into here. Uh, but I don't think I've ever been so excited to see an executive team that was really behind, knew they had to change, wasn't sure how to get to the end result and was looking for how we were gonna build this. Um, and hence today, I'm still sitting so, here with you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, uh, they have led the market, I think. I always had the best assets, I would argue, and led the market for a long time. But also just, you know, part of the exercise we're in now is about establishing a brand. Yes. And, and Westfield was there, I'd argue, you know, decades ago. So I remember going to, I was in Sydney uh, for work a long, long time ago, like in the mid-90s. And I wanted to see Westfield's mob by Bondi Beach. Yes. 
and I hop. I was hungover. I should have known that. I was flying later that day, and I hop in a taxi, and I say, "Yeah, I want to go to X Y Z." And the taxi driver goes, "Oh, Westfield's Mall." And I was in shock because no one in the yes. U.S. really retail or not really knew anyone's you know name. And now, as you know, if you take the space, not just North American but globally. Westfield's always been at the forefront. People know the Westfield properties, and some of your competitors, some have tried to brand right, right. on an enterprise level or right. a global level, and, and, and others hadn't, but Westfield's kind of been um, dominant there. It's, it's interesting so. you talk about the brand in Australia, so it was one of my, my early discoveries. I, like I said, I was born and raised in the Valley, and there's actually a significant amount of, of Westfield locations. Um, in my entire time growing up, we never referred to them as Westfield. It was always Topanga or we're going to Central right. City Mall, right? And so I, I remember going over to Australia for some of my first meetings and it was the Westfield brand was so prestigious and prominent. And I was like, well, this is just a totally different world. And then you go over to UK and mm-hmm. again, you see signage on the highways and everybody the knows. Yeah, everyone, everyone knows what Westfield is. I thought, well, this is this is this is actually a fantastic opportunity, and obviously, we were at the time when I joined. They started a few years previously, really starting to look at doing the Westfield brand more prominently, even in advertising or on, on the assets themselves. Uh, but that differentiated. I had no idea that it was that pro- over in Australia. Clearly, one of the most prestigious brands out there. Yeah, here too, though. I think most people know it by name. Yes. Than yes. not, and then one of your competitors has done more kind of trying to do more enterprise level branding. Right. I think it's not quite as strong, but they're they're it's not an easy one to solve for right. now either. But tell me, you come in you you come in here. I think in twenty fifteen. Yes, my memory right. Uh-huh. Do you take time off in between, by the way, or no? Uh no, not no? really. I always encourage people to. It's the best time if you can afford it. It's stress free, and you know, <laughs> yes, yes. usually I take like a three day weekend, and then I, you know, and I've changed jobs far more times than you See, know. See, we so. have the same, we have the same gene then. So yeah, I, maybe. I, I might have took a couple days. You, you've been at three different companies. I've been at like thirty, but but that's not just advisory. But anyway, um, and twenty fifteen is a fascinating time too because there was, if my memory is right, there was a huge shift in consumer behavior that got noticed by the owners of retail space on thirteen fourteen, and everyone realized, you know, oh, we need to go do something, we're in trouble, whatever that is. Not entirely true, but it's right. clearly it had to change in some ways. So talk about about how when you came in then and kind of what you saw relative to other industries you've been in and sort of how you established your priorities and kind of what your agenda was. And now also I want to then carry that down to where you are now because right. you've now, I didn't know by the way you got, you go back to Universal with Orange yes. and thought of that. So there's a pattern here by the way <laughs> yes, of being acquired by French <laughs> headquartered companies. Yes, absolutely. But now you have another one that right. you're going through as well, and of course your role went from Westfield, which already was as a CIO in a big role. Now you got you're the global role effectively right. for the combined entity. Mm-hmm. So if you could sort of go through that, that would be great. Absolutely. So joining in 2015, the big area of focus um, primarily was around you know we had this massive uh, development pipeline, you know, 10 billion dollars uh, across the U.S. and we were basically. Um, revamping all of our key flagship centers to be state-of-the-art centers um you know completely redesigned uh and so what it was was bringing me in to try to then connect the physical and digital worlds to basically say we have these great physical assets how do we enable this asset through technology how are we able to create a consumer experience or improve or what is going to give us the best retailers and so uh come in 2015 and, and you know really prepared to jump in like that, 
Uh, so we, I think the first year we had uh, uh, Century City, uh, World Trade Center, parts of um, Garden State Plaza, uh, and obviously continuing to this year with Valley Fair and a few others. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, these plans have been going in place for, you know, probably six to eight years. Yeah. So, yeah, I come in and Century City is, you know, to be honest with you, well under construction. Mm-hmm. And, so I'm asking questions around, you know, have you built, do we have a plan? What's our technology plan? Do we have some basic, you know, where are our communication rooms? What are, that was, that was, that was kind of the, the first eye awakening <laughs> moment of, oh, okay. All right. So I realized, you know, what we've done many times is we've built a shell and core and then we basically just worked our retailers come in right. and we, I was so impressed, you know, Averaging 28 to 30 million unique visitors per, per asset, right? So I'm like, you know, tell me about this. Who are our customers? You know, we knew how many people, but that that's really as much as we knew. So I said, okay. So first the priorities became, all right, how do we quickly, one, build a relationship with development, design, and construction? And try to show them, one, having to show the value and what we need to change and how can we do this as seamlessly as possible? Huge learning lesson for me in the arena world. You know, we have downtime or we have down seasons to a degree, minus Staples Center, which goes year round. So we, we don't shut our assets as we're doing these redevelopments. So it's a billion dollar redevelopment and it still opens every day of the week. So you have consumers and retailers and you're trying to do minimally impacting. Uh, so just to be able to come up with, you know, very basic, you know, low voltage plans, communication room plans. How are we going to get um services like parking services concierge services into locations where we have no ability to deliver connectivity spend a lot of time working on that brought in some some partners which i always firmly believe in because you i don't think you can ever take on massive projects like this and try to do it all with an internal team and so um really you know i have to see century city in particular uh, was almost working backwards. You know, they had already been under construction right. a year and a half plus, designed six plus years, and it was amazing to watch collective teams one to have the interest of so many executives to come and, and say, "Show us what you mean." And I remember my first week here, I was literally on a whiteboard showing them like what fiber was and how to connect it. And but I mean, it was executives across the whole the whole company. It wasn't just you know people who are just doing construction the wanting to learn and wanting to understand i thought was fantastic and so that was probably a telltale sign of what has been um an interesting continuously presenting new opportunities over the last three years and i say opportunities some say challenges i say opportunities (laughs) i'm with you but you know it's interesting too i think historically and i this may get misinterpreted the wrong way in most real estate companies, development, leasing, operations are not the most well-connected. It's probably a safe way of saying that. And they come with their own um, priorities. But I get that because at some level they're being measured kind of in different ways. So it's great to hear from the beginning, right, the unique aspect of the group working together and working with you and, and solving those problems. Well, they wanted to learn. I, yeah. I do agree on the silos, let me be clear. Yeah. But they also realized with some of the things we were looking with, there was a huge crossover that they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you, so if leasing had to focus on how to give retailers the best, so hey, we're gonna give you the best consumer experience so your consumers are the happiest. They understood through digital and through technology, 
again, how our, how our developers and designers built the building played a huge role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, so I think showing some of those crossovers, none of this could have been done. What you see at Century City today, if it had not been every single division in the company shifting how they worked and how they thought. Mm-hmm. That is probably one of the biggest mm-hmm. things I had not uh, estimated, uh, to be honest with you. Um, it was, no, we're gonna build this building different to we're gonna operate it different, we're gonna mm-hmm. give you different tools, we're gonna, we have so many, the systems that you looked at five years ago, which was, you know, HVAC systems, building mm-hmm. management systems, and maybe a parking system. The, the poor operations teams now as you know, 200 plus systems. I think one of the things that really helped people understand within the company and what we were up against was, I showed what an asset had prior to going through redevelopment for let's say endpoints, whether it was, you know, CCTV, access control, parking. And literally each of my assets probably had maybe 150 endpoints, maybe, Mm -hmm. including back office computers. And I showed what a Century City or a World Trade Center had afterwards. 2,800 endpoints, 3,200. Yeah. That is just a completely different world you're operating in. Um, and then, like you, like I said, it was also state-of-the-art buildings, the architecture and the, the how beautiful Westfield has always done their center still stayed intact, but then also trying to have this hospitality effect, this mm-hmm. consumer experience that we wanted to give, um, a guest engagement. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's not just technology that's people changes that's process yeah, changes culture. yes yeah. culturally yeah. oh, yes culturally uh, very very different we I, I remember the first year the constant conversation was who are our customers and uh, I'd say 95% of the organization would say retailers mm-hmm. there was a few who said actual consumers mm-hmm. um, and then you know as you know I, which seems to be might might have been a trend a little bit coming in as you mentioned there's an inflection point yeah so we were, you know, as a company, we all realize that, you know, we have great, fantastic assets, beautiful locations, but we also have probably an extensive amount of retail space that has to be repurposed. Mm-hmm. Our, our consumers are changing. They want convenience. They want restaurants. They want gyms. They want salons. That was not the norm. What was in our, our retailer mix five to six years ago, mm-hmm. not to the level of which we've had it. I'd also say the other big change was we were working, most of this industry is built on your Rolodex of who you've worked with, with the retailers over the years. That Rolodex is significantly changing. Yeah, well, I think too, part of the shift because of data, because you're talking about it went from an art and anything that's pure art doesn't go well and anything pure science doesn't go well. It's balancing those two. And yes. what's happened, I think, when, with you folks and others is you've put some level of science into that. Yes. Right, that's, that's now driving behaviors yes. or making decisions that hadn't before. That's a huge shift. It, it's a massive shift. It's, a, it's going from your gut and what you know to actually really trying to blend a bit of what your gut and what you know, because I think is incredibly valuable, mm-hmm. to actually some form of data. Uh, and so that became, my, my, my quickly my second priority was, one, as you said, uh, there was quite a few silos, and I think it's throughout the industry, not just the Westfield. The, 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 the disparate solutions and the data that was never aggregated and tried to just come up with a rationalization plan and how do you come up with you know a single source of truth whether it be on number of consumers you know how you're how you're looking at sales how your consumer engagement is right uh, so pretty uh, pretty big you know objectives of which you know I still still lots of opportunity um, 
I definitely realized, I think it was, it was a balance between taking my first year and a half and really focusing because we were, we were knee deep in the assets and development yeah. and probably maybe taking as a second priority, trying to do some of the uh, process improvement, efficiencies improvement and rationalization across mm -hmm. the company. Well, we're going to run out of time. I, I have a couple more yes. questions. So what I have to ask is, have you had mentors or advisors throughout your career that you've reached out to on some consistent basis? And, and sort of how did you find them and kind of what role do they play? You know, I, I, very similar to um, kind of having just a different career path. I absolutely have some mentors and advisors who have generally from first career at NBC to then AEG to, to even today. I have... Uh, groups of people that I meet and literally I'd say there's probably three people which started off in the NBC days. I, mm -hmm. I, to be honest with you, I was a kid coming in there mm -hmm. and there was three gentlemen who were actually on their second career. They had retired from the Pac Bells of the world mm -hmm. and they were you know, key to delivering all of the infrastructure that went into an NBC Universal. And I, they took me under their wing and taught me everything from you know, what cabling does to what communication rooms do to how end users want to book, you know, buying tickets to get into the theme park. They have been long, long colleagues and friends of mine to the day that the house I own today, I bought from one of them. So, um, still friends of mine, I tell. I actually have some mentors that have come through partnerships. So, uh, I have a great relationship with a lot of the partners I work with. We work with tons of them, but uh, Cisco and CDW in particular, they have exposed me to they don't just, uh, it's not just people within their company. They, I'm always meeting people from other industries. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I like to get feedback. I think if I just focused on the industry I'm in, I think I miss opportunities mm -hmm. to really bring process improvement and, and maybe better ways of doing things. Um, from a pure people perspective and just always remembering that it's, in my opinion, it always is about the people, mm -hmm. no matter what. Uh, my, my mentor is my mom, I have to tell you. I, I still, it's funny to me, the first time I ever called her, you know, I don't talk about my work much with, with my family because it's just I consider it that my time with them. Yeah. And I called her to tell her, you know, I made CIO, and, and her response was, that's great, honey. Just remember to be good-hearted and take care of your people. <laughs> and I just said, you know what, this, this, that's exactly what I'd expect my mom to say. So, uh, And then I think that the other the, the other person that balances me and I wouldn't call them a mentor so I have a 16 year old son and it's been a fun journey with him you know obviously he's one of the ones that I look to especially now and probably the last five years of how he wants to intake shows how he wants to shop you know what he does with his friends like they're always on a I'm always quizzing them like, why would you go to this mall instead of this one what are the things you're looking for he balances me he really uh reminds me on a day-to-day -day basis of uh you know we have a great time with everything we do, I, you know, the hard work and, 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 and such, but it's just fun, you know, taking him on this journey with me. I do remember, I don't know how easy it was to sell that we were going to leave the sports entertainment world and, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, we're going to the mall business. He's like, what? We're, we're not going to games anymore or concerts. Yeah. I said, let's just be a little different. So, uh, so yeah, no, I've been really lucky too with a lot of the, uh, the executives and the people I've worked for. Uh, in the new world, even under the new umbrella with URW, I have a really great group of executives that spend time with me. Uh, I always find it amazing. Major transaction, huge transition, mm -hmm. and you know the first person that that, that I, I spent some time with is our CFO, Yap Tompkins, and he comes by first and he says, "How you doing? You know, you doing okay? You need help with anything?" 
And uh, I, I always, uh, I, I think that's an amazing way to start a new relationship. So I've been lucky to bless Scott and I, I, could, I just can't ask for any more to be honest with you. So shifting gears, you're a trustee on the Edwin Gould Foundation. Yes, yes. That's the East Coast Connection, yes, I think, yes. in some ways. And I read a little bit about the organization, but it's effectively helping kids of all types, actually, in the yes. scheme of things, about getting them into university and education and sort of balance. Yes. How long have you been involved with them for? So I've been a board member. This is going in my second year. Okay. And I actually uh, joined via the Westfield Connection. So mm -hmm. a gentleman by the name of Mark Beeler, who's been a, a longtime consultant uh, to Westfield and the Lowy's, we, we just hit it mm -hmm. off. And uh, I was so excited for this really to be one of my first really uh, board uh, presence. And even though they're in New York and I'm, I'm Los Angeles based, it was their recognition that having maybe the CIO technology side, especially with kids and education and giving them opportunities. And it's just been, it's been a wonderful kind of uh, experience, great group of board members that make a huge difference in kids' lives and lots of organizations that have uh, been benefited from the, from the foundation directly. Uh, so it's been, a, so it's my second year and I, I'm looking forward to, to continuing that. Yeah, no, it looks great. So one final question, I, I asked everyone the same question. So if you were to give yourself advice back in 1997 mm -hmm. or whatever, somewhere yes. back in time, and you're gonna give them, it's not just career advice, I'd say life advice, like what would you give yourself? What advice would you say? Uh, I definitely would say uh, believe in yourself and look at where you can create the opportunities. I, lots of times I see a lot of people who have the opportunities in front of them, but unless it's really presented from mm -hmm. someone like their boss or a mentor in a fashion and said, here's an opportunity, they actually just see it as a challenge. I think, I don't really look at challenges or problems in that fashion. I actually see them as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And believe in yourself. If if you have the energy, the passion, the drive, and you always want to learn, there's not anything that you really aren't able to do. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Scott. So, this was fantastic. Yeah, I hope our uh, paths cross again.